Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been sponsored by smarteqp.com. SmartEQP.com gives independent distributors three competitive advantages. End quantity pricing from more than 90 of the top promotional product supplier lines, quality connections from some of the brightest minds in the industry, and cutting-edge training from top secrets of promotional product sales. To give yourself an unrivaled combination of EQP buying power, quality connections, and cutting-edge training, visit www.SmartEQP.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Robert Fiveash, president of Brand Fuel Promotions. In today's episode, we get the chance to speak with one of the industry's most dynamic, and magnetic personalities, Bill Korowitz, CEO of the Magnet Group, and I promise you the pun was not intended. Bill is a man who needs no introduction, given his and his company's prominence in the industry for the past two decades. But for those who need a refresher, here we go. Bill joined the Magnet Group in 1996 and since then has led the company's growth to include a network of leading lines like innovations by Magnet, the Bag Factory, Benchmark Crystal and Clocks, Perfect Line, to name a few. The Magnet Group has been recognized as the ASI Distributor Choice Award winner for the last 15 years straight and is now responsible for producing over 300 million magnets annually, making it the largest promotional magnet maker in the world. Wow. To add to his list of many accomplishments, Bill was recently recognized as the 2015 Person of the Year by ASI. Bill? Welcome to the program, sir. Mark, I need you to follow me around and let people know that great, great opening. <laughs> well, you know, half, half of it was fabrication, I tell you. But uh, why, don't, why don't we start off, Bill, with an easy question for you. I'm fascinated by what led you into the industry. I understand it was 1996 that you started in the industry. What were you doing before and what led you to get into this crazy business? I was in the direct mail business, and if it's possible to be in a business that's perceived as lower level than what we do today, mm. it was direct mail. And so, you know, in, in the hierarchy of things, you know, television is the big thing and radio and media. And then as you went down the line, direct mail was the, the lowest form of advertising possible. I got in as a young guy, and the company I was with was called Advo, and we were about $50 million in sales nationwide. And the company basically put labels on the Sears and Montgomery Wards catalogs and, and sent them out. So you can tell, you know, the kind of the carbon data on that when I say Montgomery Wards. And there were a bunch of young guys, and they had this idea that if they put multiple advertising pieces in one package and sent it out, the post office would charge them one rate, and therefore you could charge everyone a fraction of the mailing cost by going in the shared mail program. Hmm. And so, you know, Mark, the next thing you knew, we took off and we were $200 million in about 18 months and then went to $400 million in a couple of years and then $800 million several years later. Hmm. And the company just exploded and we went public, I think, in 1986 or so, 1987. And we were this powerhouse direct selling organization. And we, were, we were fearless. We, you know, we were too young to really understand what we were doing. And, you know, we took on every major newspaper in the country for uh, advertising dollars. Mm. So we would fight with the Boston Globe and, you know, the Hartford Current and everybody else out there for, uh, for ad dollars. And I spent 15 wonderful years at that company. And, and really that's where I learned, you know, about marketing and selling and guerrilla marketing and guerrilla selling and the whole bit. Mm. So I'm not quite sure how I got to the promotional products industry, but that's where I came from. So bring me up to 1996. So you're, you've had this great run in the direct mail industry, and then did you pivot 
into the promotional products industry by getting into the magnet group or was the magnet group doing direct mail at that time and then did you steer it into the world of product? No, you know, it was, it was totally unrelated how I got in. When I was at the uh, direct mail company, a uh, recruiting firm had tried to hire me in Atlanta to run a company and I was just a little too crazy for them. They wanted someone very staid and politically correct, I guess. Mm. And, you know, I was not that person. And at the same time at Advo, you know, my company had suddenly blossomed into 500 people in the corporate office. And I just hated waking up every morning and having, you know, 499 people tell me what to do every day. Mm. Uh, that just wasn't my, my shtick. So quite coincidentally, a young guy by the name of Peter Seidler, who bought Magnet LLC back in 1992, was looking for someone to run the company. Hmm. And he happened to hire the same recruiting firm that tried to recruit me earlier. So I guess in the analogs of the, the, the firm, they probably had, you know, a crazy advertising guy. Hmm. And that must have been what Seidler was looking for. And so uh, the firm, you know, reached out to me. And at the time, I thought it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard of. You know, making refrigerator magnets, I thought, this is, this is too hokey for me. Mm. And by the way, the company was about $22 million in sales. Right. And I'm with a company that's now a billion two, and I thought, wow, that just doesn't seem like something I want to get into. And then, quite candidly, my wife looked at me and said, you know, you're kind of stupid for not exploring this opportunity. So I met with Peter, and he was an amazing smart, energetic guy, and he had a tremendous amount of financial wherewithal. And he said, look, you know, if you can, if you can make Magnet LLC make, make money, I'll fund you to do whatever you want to do. And so I did in a short amount of time, and true to his word, we went out and bought six companies in the next 18 months. And so that's how, you know, that's how I got into the promotional products business. And then, you know, obviously once in there, I brought a lot of the direct mail products to Magnet LLC, you know, which we still have and, and use pretty effectively today. So, Bill, those six that you mentioned, were those all related to magnets? Were they focused on that at the beginning? No, actually, they were, I'd like to say we really thought long and hard about how all the parts would fit. But back in the late 90s, you know, there was a little bit of a nuclear arms race, if you will, between Seidler and a gentleman by the name of Frank Krasovic, who was putting companies together at Norwood. And, you know, at that point, a lot of supplier owners had come through the very prosperous late 80s and 90s and, you know, were anxious to get out. And so there were a lot of supplier firms for sale. So, you know, we basically went after companies that had a pretty strong balance sheet and, more importantly, a great management team. Mm. And I think the first company, if I remember right, that we bought was a... Uh, just a small little business called uh, Phone Card Express. If you remember back in the days when phone cards were, you know, the, the thing to do before cell phones really took off. And they were a four or five million dollar company. They literally made 40% bottom line profit. Hmm. And they had a couple of young guys who were great entrepreneurs. And I think that was our first acquisition and we went from there. So it was really more opportunistic buys than they were strategic fits to the magnet business. Got it. So you guys, you had some of the ancillary business, but the primary focus, at least at the beginning, was magnets. And you and I have talked about this over the years. You guys had a, a had and have a real competitive advantage when it comes to magnets because you're you know you're sourcing it, you're making it, you're printing it all in the U.S. by you all. You control production, you control stock. You've got very strong pricing influence because of your size. So you're always price competitive on the magnet side. Um, you guys are now branching off into awards and bags and notebooks and candies, all kinds of things, which I, I think is smart, you know. But um, the question, I think, is you guys have become more of a traditional supplier these days. And when I say traditional, traditional these days kind of means, means importer, right? It's sort of changed over the years. So you've changed how you, you operate a little bit. Both on the positive and negative side, give us a sense for what moving into that realm has done for you all in terms of opportunities but also risks? I think the company has benefited greatly from getting on the import side of the business. But the downside, of course, is working capital. You know, you take the magnet business where 
you make everything just in time. And you know, for that reason, you can really have a great grasp of your inventory control. Mm. To go to a, uh, a scenario where you, you know, hey, let's let's get 500,000 square feet and fill it from top to bottom with products and hope to God someone buys them. That's probably the biggest downside of the business. And whatever you have a lot of is not going to sell, and whatever you don't have enough of is what people want, or so it seems. And so your constant battle is on inventory control you know, to make sure you're meeting the market needs for colors and sizes or whatever. So that's, that brings a complexity to the business that we really didn't have in the, um, you know, in the magnet-only world. Now, that said, though, it allows us to leverage everything else, you know, all of our shared services, IT, finance, customer service, the selling organization. You know, it, if you're having a meeting, it's just as easy to present 10 products as it is to one. And that was, I think, the biggest advantage to adding a wide range of products. And that's why you see a lot of shops that, you know, bigger companies that do that. Bill, I'm curious from a branding perspective, it seems like there's two approaches on the supplier side that are amongst those suppliers that have a large number of categories. Um, I think on one hand, you've got suppliers like you at the Magnet Group where you've got multiple different brand names. Some distributors may not even yeah. know they're even owned by the same person. I'd put Beacon in the same category. Norwood, of course, you could put in the same category where there's disparate uh, line names versus, say, Hit or Leads. I know that Polyconcept, of course, has got a couple of different lines, but you could say still broadly speaking that Leads and Polyconcept goes to market with that one big brand name, whereas I've always found with the Beacons and the Magnets of the world that you really guard those individual brand names very closely. Is there a reason you did that as opposed to taking the, say, leads or the hit approach? Well, you know, it's, it, first of all, I, uh, I appreciate being mentioned in the same classes as Polyconcept. I have a lot of respect for that company and for the, for the guys that run the place. So thank you for that. I guess I was brought up in the, in the branding school of, you know, the, the line names and what they represent are more important than the parent, if you will. So when you go to the grocery store, you don't buy Procter and Gamble. You buy Tide, right? Or you buy Gain, you know. And I think that's the, the my preferred mentality is to maintain the equity that was developed in that brand name, right? And to and to really plow through it. So it always fascinated me that a company would acquire another company and then immediately throw out the management team, the name, the, the logos, the symbols, everything that was built up in that company to put it under the parent. And I've never seen in our industry where that type of addition has really led to growth. It right. usually always leads to subtraction. Right. And I think one of the differences between, uh, you know, when you compare us to an Orwood, for example, that I really believed in the brand so strongly that I believe we were able to buy them and grow them. Right. Whereas some of the other guys put them all under the same name, and I think it, it dissipated the value of the of the brand. So. And you know, it's interesting. I know that Polyconcept has been testing the waters with this idea of a marketplace whereby you, as a supplier, don't necessarily get acquired by Polyconcept, but you sell through their marketplace on the Polyconcept site. So it's interesting that I see some similarities between what they're now starting to do with what you have done for many, many years, and that at the end of the day, you've got a great platform, whether it's a financial platform, a customer service platform, a tech platform, and you're channeling that much more business through it. So I think all the roads probably lead to the same end conclusion, but I was thankful for you answering that question about the branding because I, I think it's just really interesting how people go to market on the supplier side. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you, guys, the wild card in the future is going to be, does any of that matter based on how people search for product? Right. You know, and that really will be the fundamental question. Are they just searching for product or are they searching for a brand name, a company, a sales rep, a customer service? How, how are they going to seek out the products that they need to fill their customers' needs. And I think you're going to see the game change probably one more time so that everything I said probably won't matter <laughs> in a couple of years. Right. Great answer. Along the lines of the multiple product lines, you guys have locations in multiple states. So you've got 
upper management in Atlanta. You've got production in Missouri and Nevada and California. For distributors and suppliers that are growing, trying to figure out how to scale a business when you're not all there together might seem like a, a really daunting task, but you've obviously managed to, to overcome that. Tell us how you do it, and do you have any advice for those out there who are considering branches or, or production or what have you in, in different areas? Well, you can follow my, my three-point plan. You ready for this one? <laughs> um, Bring it on. first point would be hire really, really great people, and either raise them through your organization so you know who they are and they know what your core values are, or else go out and just spend as much money as you possible on the best possible candidate you can find. That would be point one. Point two would be get a, uh, a psychiatrist on staff, and point three would be a bartender. <laughs> and have those three things, you can successfully manage multiple locations. You scared me there because I wasn't sure if it was a real three-point plan and I should start writing it down or, or, or the, the real one, which is what you mentioned. Good. That is the real one. I think it was pretty real. You know, I mean, in our company, we're really blessed in that we have some great, great general managers that run the facilities. They are, you know, they're wonderfully talented uh, and they run the range. Some have been, you know, in the company for 20 years and some have been in the industry for 20 years, but in all cases, I feel that the day-to-day -day management of the company is really happening. It's impossible, I think, to be the day-to-day -day manager, visionary, and, you know, acquisition guy, blah, 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 uh, and do all those things yourself. I, I think it's, you know, your ego may say you can do it, but that's, I think in practicality, it's not possible. Right. Well, and I think that really, if you look at any successful entrepreneur in this industry, or really any industry for that matter, usually find it's someone that has been able to successfully separate themselves from the day-to-day -day operations of the business. You know, it's kind of business 101. And so this is a comment, but also a question for you, Bill, that I, I'm curious now whether, given that you're at the helm of TMG, which of course 100% owns Magnet Group and you're on the, on the hunt for additional supplierships, is there a part of you that misses that day-to-day product side of the business? Or were you ever a product guy? Are you more of a, you know, getting the deals done and, and putting the companies together and then just hiring great general managers to take care of the day-to-day? -day? Well, you know, it, it, that's a great question, Mark. When I reference the day-to-day -day as a general manager in our company, what that really means is that you're managing customer service, shipping, you know, yep. production, quality control, you know, all those aspects of producing the product, answering the phones and all those kinds of things. I am very intimately involved in all of our product selections to this day. I'm intimately involved in all the catalog production, all the, mm. the marketing and, and everything that goes with it. Now, I have great guys that we've been able to get and bring into the company over the last several years who frankly are better than me in product development, but I'm still in there. We lock ourselves in a room a couple of days every every quarter and go through, you know, probably a thousand products to see what we want to further develop and move on with. And I'm in there. I don't do the catalog pagination anymore, but I do take a look at every single page and make the final call on do I like it or not. <laughs> so in a strange in a strange but true scenario. And I guess that's my favorite part of the business. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I keep my hands in it. But I think you have to, in our industry, you have to really understand your products, what you've got in the warehouse, and what's being developed out there in the world that need to be in your warehouse. Bill, given what you know now as being this successful supplier entrepreneur, if you took yourself back to your early 20s and you're just getting into the space and you you want to get into the promotional products industry as a supplier, what would you do now? What, what advice would you have for the eager 20-something that wants to bring product to market and sell it through the distribution channel that we've got? I would probably say start out as a distributor. Yeah, how so? You know, I think the part that I miss, and it's slant because of my background. I mean, I've been a direct selling guy for the formidable years of my life in my 20s and 30s. And I think at the end of the day, he who controls the customer relationship controls everything. Hmm. And I think that's the toughest part about being a supplier is that you get to a point, but then you stop, and you have to relinquish that control, obviously, to the distributor. 
And I think as a distributor, if I was able to get in there and mix it up with the customers and talk about you know this vast array of products, I probably, as a distributor, would have become my own supplier as well a lot a lot quicker. Right now, on the supply side, when you're in this business, you can't create enough scale to replicate a hundred thousand you know Robert Five Ashes. So you are linked. And, and candidly, like it or not, but you are linked to distributors and their sales organizations to make it happen for you. Hmm. And my simple advice would be, if I were 20 years old again, I would have been a distributor in a blink. Right, and then ultimately developed your own product line, brought it in from overseas, or you could have made it domestically yeah. and then just sold it direct. I mean, I think you certainly see that with a number of distributors, particularly the larger e-commerce distributors are getting into that space because they've got the demand and they've got the sourcing wherewithal. and and they'll do that. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. It is, Bill. And, and you know, I would say that the vast majority of distributors out there really do appreciate the relationship that they have with their supplier partners as much as folks sort of grumble about, you know, the, the resources that they get or don't get or rebates or specs or end user calls or what have you, the, the lack thereof or lots of it. You know, despite the grumbling, I think most distributors really, really do appreciate their supplier partners and understand the enormous value that they bring to the equation because just saying you're going to go out there and, and source overseas is obviously it's enormously more complicated than, than that. So I wanted to ask just a couple questions along those lines in terms of the supplier and distributor relationship. Tell us how an average distributor can make that relationship with you all as healthy as it possibly can be. You know, it's not just about what can you give us, it's what can we give you and what can we share. And, and maybe give us a, an example of a particularly symbiotic structure that you've seen that you would love to see as a model for the industry. Well, <laughs> great question again. And I'm probably going to make you roll your eyes with the answer, but I think what any supplier will tell you is that we need the truth when we're on the phone with our distributor partners. Here's what I mean by that. Is this really a job? Do you really know the customer? Or are you on a fishing expedition? You want to get to know that customer, and you'd like me to give you some things to help you maybe get your foot in the door. Versus I've got a project that needs done this week because they've got an event or something that's happening in a couple of days. The truth will allow us to give you great service and great idea generation if that's what you want. Because a lot of times what backs up a supplier is that you're faced with, I'll give you a day at Magnet, we will have 500 quotes for projects. And what I don't know if those are fishing expeditions or whether they are real life projects. So I have to treat them equally. Right. And the guys that are prospecting, if they would tell me, I could say to them, look, here are the products that you need to, to get into this business. I know these types of businesses. Here's what works. Use these types of things. Here's the variations if you want to be more creative. But go in with this, establish a budget and plan, blah, 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 and then off you can go. And when you don't get that kind of honesty, it's very difficult to be actually dressed for them. And, and you can tell right away when someone says, I need to quote for 500 50,000 and 5 million magnets, I know that they've not done any kind of needs assessment for that customer and they're going on a fishing expedition, or at least that's what it feels like. And so, you know, Robert, you and I through the years have had some very candid conversations about what you're doing and, you know, we've signed confidentiality agreements back and forth at times for different things. And, you know, I love doing those kinds of things because the more you tell me, the more I can help you. Hmm. I think that's about as, as basic as I can get. If you have a deadline tomorrow, tell me. I'll get in the car and drive it to you if I have to. Right. But if it's really two weeks from now, let me do a better job over the next six or seven days for you and then give it to you. That's fantastic. I think most distributors would agree that they are at their very best and the industry is, is at its very best when we are sharing and when we're open with our supplier partners and, and we, we present better together than we do separately if we're, we're letting each other sort of peek underneath. I, I guess the, the fear of some is that you know, how open should we be with our supplier partners? How much should we share? How much access should we actually give them to the end user 
if there's a chance down the road with various you know, things that could occur in the industry or changes or alliances or what have you where we may be up against our supplier partners. You know, we, we understand that, that that's best. That, that's how we put our best foot forward to the client. But how do you reconcile that? There are certainly simple agreements that you can have with your supplier. You know, hey, I'm calling on Delta Airlines. I've got a great relationship. I need your help. I need you to call on them directly. You know, there, there's a simple agreement that you can put in place as long as the distributor has Delta, you have Delta kind of thing. You know, and I, and I guess at the end of the day, you either trust the people you're doing business with or you don't. And if they've demonstrated that ability to be honorable and, you know, have your back in tough situations, then I think that they probably deserve more trust, and I think that's how you operate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it is a tricky question. I mean, I, I don't have the answer for, you know, what happens several years down the road. But, you know, if you've never been in a situation with that supplier where they've gone around your back or they've, you know, <laughs> they've cheated on you, I think you need to give them a little more slack. And let's face it, you know, the, the big suppliers are getting bigger. The big distributors are getting bigger. You know, that tie, that link is getting stronger. Mm. And I think... You know, in my old life, we used to call them making four-legged calls, but I think our industry would benefit greatly by making four-legged calls, two legs from the distributor, two from the supplier, and, and really make some things happen. It, sometimes it's difficult to make a project go through the eyes of an interpreter, hmm. whereas if I can get one of my guys on the ground with you, they can on the spot say, here's what's possible, here's what's not possible. Right. So, you know, Bill, it, what's interesting to hear you say that is I think that everyone listening to this podcast would be not in their heads in agreement that we as distributors and suppliers need to be working better together and that distributors need to be sharing more information with suppliers and that suppliers should be acting upon that information. And I think that everyone agrees with that conceptually. You know, it's funny, I was talking with Robert a couple weeks ago and we were talking about lunch and learns where suppliers will come into the distributor and how it can be so exciting, but at the same time, so disappointing to be faced with the scenario I'm about to explain to you. And it's uh, where the supplier comes in, they're all charged up, they buy lunch for the distributor, they've got case studies, they've got samples, they've got spec sample offers, they're shaking hands and, and making things happen. And then with all sorts of uh, commitments to be the idea person for X number of projects, and everyone walks away and is super excited. And then a couple days later, the distributor then takes the supplier up on that offer and there's crickets. Now, that's not, we're not suggesting Magnet falls into that category, but it's just, I think some suppliers fall into that category. And I think then it frustrates the distributor base that says, well, we're trying to reach out, but then the response that we get from some suppliers is either A, I'm too busy for that because I'm on the road doing lunch and learns, or some will say, well, hang on a second here. It's not really our job to come up with these creative ideas. That's the distributor's job. We're, we're, we're just supposed to be here to answer the phone and ship your product. So just send us the orders. What do you say about that? Is that a surprise that some distributors feel that way or have been treated that way by suppliers? Oh, it's not a surprise at all. You know, it's, it's funny because I, uh, I like to get out to the shows and I work the booth. And yeah, I, I see a couple fellow you know, CEO owner types still in it, but not, there aren't many of us. And I do it because I like to hear what people are bringing to me in terms of, you know, hey, I've got an idea, I've got a project, whatever. And I've also done several, you know, executive meets, executive style meetings. You know, there's several ways of doing it. You know, you sit in a hotel room or whatever and people bring their sales reps in and, yep. you know, you meet uh, every 20 minutes or so. And I'll tell you, the follow-up is overwhelming. And, and I'll tell you why I think that is. When someone says to me, hey, I have, and I'll use Delta because I'm in Atlanta, I have a Delta account. What do you have for me? So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, let's see. There's probably 40,000 employees in Delta, maybe 50. Are you calling on the, the, the maintenance guy? Are you calling on the marketing person? Who are you talking to in that company? What are you talking about? You know, and, and so to get into the needs analysis, of a company of that size in a short meeting, I think, is a waste of time. Yep. It is impossible. Yep. And so I think what happens sometimes, especially, and listen, I, I, 
not only have I been trained well in needs assessment of customers, but I actually used to be the teacher of sorts in my old life. And you know, when you are are skilled at doing those kinds of things, and you encounter a, you know a scenario where you're in there talking about you know five different accounts, it's impossible for you to have any clue of what the strategic objective is for that that end user account. Mm-hmm. And then you come back to your place and apply different products and and stuff. I mean. You have no idea what they want to do. You have no idea of a budget. You don't have any idea of what they did in the past. How the heck are you going to do that? And I think what happens is that sometimes junior level folks leave those types of meetings thinking, uh-oh, I probably shouldn't have said that because mm. I don't know what to do next. And if I were a distributor, I'd be mad in hell. Yeah. And they mad because I just burned my guy's time, you know, and building up all this feel-good stuff. And, and listen, I've been on both sides of that ball. Yeah. I've... Uh, you know, I've been the guy that felt guilty because I couldn't deliver enough stuff to the distributor personally. Right. Uh, as I said, I've done this. And conversely, I've been on the side where I've delivered a mountain of information. Right, and you get nothing. I get nothing. And feed, did you present this to the customer? Can you at least tell me that? Did they think I was nuts? <laughs> and, you know, again, I think it goes back to the truth. Maybe truth is too strong, but maybe the whole disclosure aspect of, you know, of where's the relationship in the uh, in the end user, and what are they trying to accomplish? And you'd be shocked, I think, at how many people really don't have a good concept of what their customer wants. And but having said that, there are some really great distributors and some really great people in this business who do know those things. Mm. When you meet those folks, you don't necessarily meet them at a lunch and learn. You meet them at a you know you've already known who they are. Or you meet them one on one. They tell you what they're doing. And you can really get a heck of a game plan. I, I give you this as just as a, as a side commentary. The at Magnet LLC, the number of repeat orders that we have for orders that are fifty thousand dollars and greater would shock you. And we try to understand why do we have so many repeat orders of fifty thousand dollars plus. And the answer is when we when we really dig in is that we really have an understanding of what that distributor and end user are trying to do, and we can make it happen for everybody so much easier that the easy thing to do is just say, let's just keep doing the, doing the project. That's fantastic. I mean, you, you mentioned in that last answer about Delta and you know, who are you talking to? Are you talking to the maintenance guy? Are you talking to marketing? Or are you talking to procurement? And I think that's one of the areas where we as distributors struggle. We, we, we're not sure exactly who the right person to talk to. And, and certainly in Fortune 500 companies, those distributors that are of a certain size that can can handle that type of account, you know, it might be HR, it might be sales. Oftentimes, it is procurement, and the conversation that you have with the procurement folks is very different than the conversation you might have with the the maintenance folks at, at Delta. And so, just as a specific example, I wanted to run something by you and kind of get your take on it, um, because I think it hits home to to some of the larger distributors when they're working on large RFPs for for adults, for example. And so oftentimes these, these procurement folks, they're, they're obviously trying to get the best deal. They're trying to reduce the number of suppliers or vendors that they have. And a lot of them are moving towards reverse auction and other sort of you know, really bloody sort of ways to, to get pricing down. And so you've got distributor A and distributor B sort of getting bloodied together in this, in this competition dropping margins drastically and taking what seems to be by some most of the hits in that process because if you look at it a certain way, whether I win the business or my competitor wins the business, the business is coming to you, to the supplier. And you're going to get the business and you're likely going to give us a good competitive deal, but you're able to maintain the types of margins that keep you healthy versus perhaps I've won the business, but maybe I'm not so glad I won the business if I've cut my margins in half. So tell me where that perception goes wrong, if it's wrong, and, and sort of what's the reality there? Is, is there a way for there to be a bit more of the bearing of the pleasure and the pain versus just the, the pain part on the distributor? You know, you can tell it's a political season, Robert. That is, that's a heck of a question right there. <laughs> I feel a little bit like Trump trying to answer the difference between the Kurds and the other Taliban. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to go off on a tangent, and I'm going to come back. I hope to try to answer your question quickly. But you know, I, I think that part of the challenge in our business is that I think it's very easy to make 
a fair amount of money on a project. And I think that project by project is a tough way to make a living. And people in the advertising and marketing world, branding world, that make a lot of money are the ones that get into a company, understand what they're trying to accomplish, and really get in there. And they may start at a low level, but they work a, a, a strategy to work their way up to the highest level in that company that they can get into and really become a part of the, the solution process. And when that happens, suddenly price is less of a consideration, even though we all talk about price, price, price. But when you really get into you know, the, what the company is trying to accomplish, the end user, and what the parameters are for what success is in, that, in their eyes, suddenly you know, a, a nickel on a seed doesn't make any bit of difference whatsoever. And I can relate it to my own business. You know, when someone brings a solution to me, hey, I can, I can make this magnet faster, I'm all ears. And I want to understand how it can fit the needs of my business. Is it speed? Is it, is it uh, flow through? Whatever. And when I know that I have a partner in that regard, I tell them more, and suddenly it may cost me a little bit more, but in the end of the day, I make a lot because I'm able to make my customers happy. We're not integrated deep enough into these accounts to really become, and, I, and again, I'm making a very general statement, I get it, but we're not in there deep enough, high enough into a company to really make an impact on their solution process. Right. I think that's why we're always going to be arguing about a penny here and a nickel there. My evidence that I'll give you is that when you look at the sales organization that we rely on, which is our distributor base out there, if you really look at how many of those accounts line up in some strategic way with the end users, uh, decision makers, I don't think you're going to see it at that deep of a level in a lot of places. And what I mean by that is, the sales rep should be meeting with the procurement person. Their sales manager should meet with, you know, the director of, of whatever. You know, maybe Robert Fibash is the president of his distributorship is meeting with the senior VP of merchandising and so on. And having those various levels of your company integrated into theirs, I promise you, you become more part of the, the solution process and, and price is less significant. My old CEO used to beat that into us when we were in the junk mail business. He, you know, his favorite expression was, you know, value was created in the office of the customer. Right. And it was all about finding what their true needs were. And just one last thing, and I know I'm rambling a little bit, but when we would meet with the CEOs of companies, their needs were so much different than the needs of people in their organization, it was frightening. And once you finally got to that level, and it was a struggle, and it sometimes took years, but once you got to that level and you realized that, hey, you know what, the CEO's uh, glaring need is recruiting people because he, they can't find enough to supply their growing business, then you realize suddenly that your focus should be on providing solutions to the, the marketing people on recruiting, and now everybody's winning and no one's talking about price anymore. Mm. Bill, I think that answer is far from rambling. It was actually really, really fascinating. And I want to throw this out at you. It's kind of a question for both of you, because I know, Robert, at BrandFuel, you've had many years of experience in selling large programs. I know we've spoken over the last couple of years that you've seen the margins erode and that you're starting to get into these nasty bloodbath type reverse auctions and your margins are now shrinking and that's what led you to the question you just asked Bill. And taking what Bill just said, which I think is really absolutely bang on, like think of the last bloodbath RFP that you won where you might have had to go in and take it at a margin that you weren't very happy with. Do you think that you could have gone in and moved past the procurement person? Let's say speak to the senior VP of merchandising and taken a very solutions-oriented approach with that person and said, listen, I know we've got this nasty RFP that we have to respond to, but why don't we just put this aside for a second and talk about the big picture of your business and how we at BrandFuel can really insert ourselves in as a solutions-oriented provider. Do you think that that company would say, you know what, 
I'm all ears and I'm going to buy it at the price brand fuel has decided to charge it at, not at the price that our lowly procurement person has put into some annoying spreadsheet. Do you think that's like, I, I, you know, I, I want to really tear this apart because Bill, you're absolutely bang on, but I also think that the distributors are really struggling with this really tricky decision where it's like, do I take $5 million at 20 points or do I lose it altogether? Solution selling be damned. <laughs> I think um, that's a, a great question, Mark. Bill, you mind if I take it first? Oh, please. <laughs> so the last one, and I've, I've, I've still got blood in certain crevices of my body from it. The, the last one that we went through was, you mentioned the, the, and I know you're just being funny, but the lowly procurement guy or what have you. In this particular situation, this was a you know, Fortune 100 company, very large opportunity for us. The procurement folks were making the decision. There was no way around that. The entire process, you weren't allowed to talk to anyone else. You weren't allowed to email friends in the company. You weren't allowed to try to go around it whatsoever. If you did and were caught, you were expelled from the RFP group and all that kind of stuff. I think the trend of procurement people making these decisions for the, the very large companies is, is not going to go away. You know, as long as they consider what we sell a commodity, you know, that, that trend is only going to, to continue and, and to grow. So the procurement person that we had to deal with, because we really didn't have any way around it, fortunately was receptive to the idea that, that we could make these purchases more cost effective for them. And it didn't mean that the pricing necessarily was going to be lower, although that was part of it. It really was about how can we work with your team of buyers, and there were hundreds of them, to make this process more efficient. You know, how can we get the right product in front of the right people more efficiently? You may not spend less on this, but you're going to get more eyeballs on the product. And obviously that's what we all preach, but he was willing to actually listen to that conversation over a period of months. And we weren't the incumbent. We came in in a situation where we were, the, the company that we were working with was purchased by the larger company, and we were essentially told that our days were numbered and, and we'll see you later. And we spent the next year convincing this procurement person that we should have a seat at the table. And thankfully, he was receptive to the idea that it's not necessarily all about the price of the product. It's really how many, you know, what's, what's the cost per eyeball? And so we're a year into that, and I think we've been very successful with it. But I do think, it, sort of getting back to your question, Mark, had we, and, and maybe this wasn't even your question, but in hearing Bill kind of talk it through, if you think about that situation kind of in a parallel universe where you're not afraid of anything and you've got the guts to present the very best case to the client, having a supplier partner alongside you in those meetings with the person who is, is absolutely making the decision on this multi-million dollar spend it seems like that would have been putting our best foot forward. Hmm. Bill, what do you have to say about that? I'm giving you a little bit of the perspective on the distributor side in terms of uh, not challenging what you were saying, but sometimes just sharing what the reality is when you try to be that strategic solutions, creative type seller, and then you get shut down at the door of the procurement office. You know, like I said, I've lived on both sides of the world and you know, what Robert is describing, I'm sure, is true. And I'm sure that there are, you know, more than one occasion in the course of the day where that is exactly how it happened. However, my contention would be there are also thousands of customers where you could get into a different level in the building. And I'll tell you, you have to be creative, and you have to be aggressive, and you have to be uh, willing to take some risks you know, again, in my old life, you know, if there was a senior VP we needed to meet and they had a favorite charity, you could bet we were at the gala. Yeah. <laughs> We'd find a way to meet them. Yeah. You know, and, you know, we did some crazy things and, you know, whatever it took to get a meeting. And I think there are customers that are like that where you can do those kinds of things. And I think once you're able to, you know, try that out and see if it works for you, and you can get to a different level of, of uh, person in the building, then I think you have the ability to maybe fire some customers who are just shopping price and just where you are and you're not making any money. And I think that's a good place to be in. Yeah. 
And I'd always be a proponent of trying to leverage myself into a business at the highest level I, uh, you know, I possibly could. And, and, and I just, my last thought on it is this. I'm doing it for selfish reasons in that we're a $22 billion industry. I mean, to me, that's, we're scratching the surface here. Yeah. And when you think about it, again, I'll use, I'll use Delta, you know, how much money is the human resource department spending on its own people? And there's a number. How much money are they spending keeping their frequent flyers happy? There's another number. How much money are they spending, you know, on uh, uh, keeping airport personnel unrelated to their business but related to their business happy and so on and so on? And, you know, then there's just the whole advertising marketing budget. Yep. When you start adding the money that a company like Delta would spend on the things that we provide as an industry, man, that's a lot of money. Yep. And multiply that by the Fortune 2000 and see what yep. kind of number you come up with. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is, we should, we should book a separate podcast where we can speak about this alone. But I think, you know, if there's anything that we're trying to do with this podcast for the overall industry, Bill, it's, it's, it's almost encapsulated in everything we've just spoken about in the last 10 minutes. And bringing my experience with my distributor hat on, I think that the future of our industry the future success of the industry, the future profitability and longevity of this industry is going to lie in the distributors and suppliers bringing truly creative solutions to those thousands and thousands of companies that you mentioned and not necessarily the soul-sucking procurement people that can't allow themselves to see beyond promotional products as just a commodity. Because I, I think what ends up happening, and Robert, I know that you were alluding to this, is that I think the industry gets a bad name when all of a sudden it just comes down to a low-priced commodity that can be purchased through a spreadsheet versus a true solution. And I think the more that we drive at the latter, the more that we're going to be able to make more money, the more we're going to be able to expand the pie, the more that we're going to be elevated in the eyes of the buyer that doesn't think of us as trinkets and trash like you had alluded to at the very beginning, saying that we were one better than junk mail. So. That's maybe more my comment is that I, 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 I'm sitting here excited hearing you talk about that, Bill, because that's what people in this industry need to hear about is not, not how to win at the procurement game as much as they need to win at the whole long tail we've got of opportunity to really grow things in the business. So there you go. I salute you, sir. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. And I, it's, it's a lot born from my old life and my frustration in my current life that I can't help distributors tee it up with some of the, you know, the different levels of people in the company and really go make some money. And I, I think our industry is such a fledgling enterprise. Hmm. $22 billion, forget about it. We're not even scratching the surface. But if, if you believe in $22 billion, I'm not even sure I understand that number, but I just think we have so many more places to go. Bill, you're you know with TMG Capital, you are you are out there looking for these types of companies, you know either to kind of fill a, a spot in your pie there pie chart to make sure you cover all the different categories, but but also I'm curious if you're what you're seeing out there. Are you finding suppliers out there that act in a way and have product lines that that are similar to what what Mark was describing there? Are there are there companies out there that are are providing the types of products that would make the the deltas of the world see our industry in a different way, or or is it is, is it still too much me too out there? Well, I think the irony in life, Robert, you deal with this all the time, I'm sure. The irony in life is the same guy that says, "Yeah, I don't know about that swag," is wearing a logo T-shirt. He goes home to a refrigerator covered in magnets. He has logo pens. He's you know he's got bags with the company logo. I mean, you know it's it's meaningful, useful product. I still think that, I wish we weren't promotional products, I wish we were called branded solutions or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Where just the name of what we do implied a deeper connection to a company's, you know, core beliefs and, and, and branding needs than it is for, yeah, hey, yeah, we're having a promotion, let's throw some stuff at you. I get mad when people call it swag and trinkets and trash. You know, when I was younger, I'd want to fight him. Now I just get mad. <laughs> I 
because um, I think we've got to change that. And you know, whether it's in the political ranks out there where you hear someone, oh, the governor of XYZ state says we're not going to sell promo items anymore. What does that even mean? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Hmm. You know, you need to promote your state, you knucklehead. You need to <laughs> you need to get tourists and people buying things from XYZ state. You know, get a grip on it. So it, there's a little bit of an overhaul. Truth of the matter is, I'm, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I can make comments, but not necessarily drive the change. I mean, I think it's the the newer folks that we're bringing into the business that are going to really have to uh, get up and get after this thing. I, I just taking a look at the time here. I can't believe that we're nearing the end here, and I know that. Um we always like to give our guests the chance to have the last word if it happens to be something that you really wanted to say or whether you want to let listeners know about more information about Magnet or, or uh, information they can find about you. But uh, we want to be able to give you the, uh, the last word here before we close things down. Well, I, I appreciate it. First of all, I really enjoyed it. I hope I didn't ramble on a little too much on some things. I would just say that my commercial for the Magnet Group would be that if you want a company to kill themselves to help you make money and make your customer happy, then call us. Because that's exactly what we'll do for you. You know, we earned a lot of accolades for customer service because we really take it very, very seriously each and every day and each and every customer. And, uh, uh, you know, we just appreciate the business that we get and the, the friends and relationships that we've made. So, and, and like the two of you, fine characters. It took a Friday afternoon to, to talk to me, so thank you so much. <laughs> well, it, it has been an, an enormous pleasure. I, it's been a lot of fun. No rambling whatsoever. I've actually been jotting a whole sorts of notes here. I've learned lots from you, and I'm glad that we've actually recorded this so I can go back and listen to some of the higher points. I'll say in closing, outside of thanking you on behalf of Robert and myself and Promo Kitchen, Bill, a real congratulations on winning the, uh, the the 2015 Person of the Year Award. I was actually in Chicago at that dinner and really enjoyed your speech. And it's been nice to get to know you a little bit more on this particular podcast. But an enormous honor and uh, certainly well-deserved. So congratulations on that. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.